But I want us to return today to Psalm 19. And I want to spend a couple more weeks on this psalm. Now, obviously, given this early sermon, um, today will be quite short because we have the Lord's Supper. But I want to get back to this issue of secret sin. Um, A few weeks ago, we started looking at Psalm 19. And that first sermon, most of what we did was look at the breakdown of the whole psalm. Now, I want to read it all, but I want us to focus particularly on verses 12 to 14 for the next couple of weeks. But let's read the whole psalm. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. Psalm 19. For the choir director, a psalm of David. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of God and it is eternally true. Now, I said a few weeks ago that you can break this psalm down into three sections. The first section has to do with the book of nature, the second section, the book of scripture, and the third section, asking God for more knowledge, namely that he will now reveal to us our hearts, our own sin, and that we will have even more grace to see who we are. I talked about the book of nature being general or natural revelation, that this is something that every man and woman who has ever lived has had access to, but that the book of Scripture is something that God only gives to his people. Now, does this mean that the Bible isn't translated for everyone that reads English? No. Everybody who reads English has a decent Bible, a decent translation that they can read. But even in English, where there are so many choices of Bibles, Those who can read the Bible still are not given Scripture until they're given the Holy Spirit to convince them, A, that the Bible is true, and B, to apply that word to them in such a way that it changes them. So you have general revelation. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Well, the rain 
of God's character falls on the just and the unjust. And the example I used a few weeks ago is the, the, the hugeness of the universe. That if you go to cosmologists and astronomers today and ask them how big the universe is now, they will tell you that in the last few months their estimates have radically changed and gotten much, much smaller. Right? No, it never goes that way. It gotten much, much larger, so that you will find scientists on the Argonne National Laboratory, when asked by uh, lay people how big the universe is, they'll say things like, uh, for instance, this. Um, they will say, according to our present understanding and knowledge, the universe goes on forever. A scientist using the word forever. All right. We do not have any sensible model in which you come to an end of space. There are models in which the space is finite, but still it does not have any boundary. Finite, but no boundary, right? Another scientist, nobody knows how big the universe is. We do know it is at least something like 10 billion light years in radius because we can see stars out that far. Most people think the universe is infinite, at least in some sense, so that it really does not ever, quote, end, unquote. Or if you want to get more uh, specific, uh, Dr. Simon Mitten, science director of Cambridge University Press, says, quote, I find it impossible to imagine the true size of the universe. Although it takes a beam of light just one second to go around the earth an incredible seven times, it would still take the same beam of light 100,000 years to cross the Milky Way. And to top it all, light from the edge of the universe has taken 15,000 million years to reach us. Our galaxy is just one of the many billions and billions scattered throughout the universe. One of the closest is the Andromeda galaxy where most aliens and science fiction films seem to come from. You can see this galaxy on autumn evenings even without a telescope or binoculars. It just looks like a fuzzy patch of light but is in fact a galaxy bigger than our own and so far away it takes two million years for its light to reach us. And so when scripture says the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. We can read that literally. Their expanse is what? Declaring the work of his hands. And the expanse is monumental. It's huge. And so everyone who's ever lived has a very clear picture of the glory of God. But who has a picture of the sin of man? Who has a picture of the provision of for man's sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. Only those who are given Scripture. This is not revealed in nature. And only those who are given not just Scripture, but the Holy Spirit convincing them that Scripture is true. And the Holy Spirit applying that Scripture to them in such a way that they go from it, not forgetting what they saw in the mirror, but changed. And so this is the doctrine in this chapter. First, what God shows everyone, then what God shows through his word only to those that he chooses to show it to. Even though the Bible's in English, not all English people have seen what scripture says. But then David, the psalmist, is not content with that. And he then goes on and he says, 
I'm not content with what the universe shows me. I'm not content with what Scripture shows me generally. Would you now reveal even more about myself to me? Now, let me ask you, how many of you, when you read the Bible, how many of you want to know more about yourself? I'll tell you, for, my, for myself, when I get done reading the Bible, almost always I have what used to be known as a surfeit of self-knowledge. In other words, enough that I almost want to puke. All right? The Bible opens me up to myself enough, thank you, you know, I don't lack self-knowledge when I get done reading particular scriptures usually. And yet, David, what we see is that he is continually devoted to asking the Holy Spirit to reveal more of himself to him. Now, that runs completely in the face of modern evangelical Christianity. Modern evangelical Christianity thinks that repentance is something that you do only if you didn't grow up in a Christian home, and then... You do it quickly so it can be behind you and you can live the victorious Christian life where you smile and never feel guilty another day in your life. All right? Modern evangelical Christianity is opposed to self-knowledge. Now, that's not entirely true. There are many books written there about how you can resolve the conflict you had with your father when you were growing up. And it certainly does want you to study all the ways that your father failed you or mother, or siblings, or teachers, or pastors, you know, the abusing church. There are some things that the modern evangelical world does want you to know quite a bit about yourself, but generally it all amounts to you pointing the finger of blame to other people. But modern evangelical Christianity does not specialize in putting your soul under a microscope and teaching you to be devoted to what you see there. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Now, let me give you an illustration that's very painful. I have a dentist, and he happens to go to this congregation. And I love this dentist. He's the most charitable and compassionate. They have some ads for the compassionate dentist or the gentle dentist. No dentist could hold a candle to this man. This man is even concerned about the pain of the needle that's going to take away the pain. But he does something that is unbelievably painful, and I've told him I hope that he won't do it anymore. And you know what that is? When I get in that chair and open my mouth, he has his hygienist take this little pen that has a camera at the end of it and shove it in my mouth to my gums and to the spaces between my teeth. And then right in front of me is a monitor. And if you want to know what disgusting is, <laughs> it is absolutely disgusting. And you know, the truth is, if I'm paying a man money, I would just as soon not have that, please. <laughs> now, here's the truth. The truth is that's exactly what our attitude is towards preachers. If you're going to pay me money, put money in the offering plate, you're going to tell me to chill out on that deal about putting the microscope or the camera into your mouth and showing you the crud. And that's what the Bible means when it says we will surround ourselves with preachers who will say what our itching ears want to hear. And I'll tell you, what your itching ears don't want to hear is about your sin. 
And if you're willing to hear about your sins in general, like, yeah, you don't come to a complete stop at the stop sign, you know, golly gee. Okay? You're certainly not willing to have your preachers speak to you about your secret sins. Do you understand that? And yet when we look at this psalm, what we see in this psalm is that the psalmist prays that God will acquit him and clean him of his secret sins. In fact, it's a theme in Scripture that the godly desire more information from God about their wickedness. In fact, it's a theme of Scripture that as the godly become more godly, they become more convinced of their sinfulness. In fact, I can tell you that in my life, as I've known godly people who have aged, I can always say two things about those godly people as they age. A, their pride, if they ever had any, is absolutely non-existent as they age. All right? The older they get, the more they are appalled by their sinfulness. This is godly people all right, who are growing in sanctification and holiness. They become more convinced of their sinfulness. And B, they become more idiosyncratic, more weird, more strange. That's what happens to godly people as they age. Now, the second I can't prove from Scripture. But it's my own observation. I think that as the Holy Spirit works on us, He frees us up to be more who we naturally are. And just like snowflakes are infinitely complicated, so are we, and society is always trying to squelch who we really are, even as it tells us to express ourselves, right? And so we all go out and we all wear black and we all pierce our tongues. I mean, you get it? It's a joke. Society is never willing for you to be weird. It will tell you if you're going to be weird exactly how you're to be weird and when. All right? But the Holy Spirit frees us, liberates us to be and to use all the gifts that God has given us. And as we use those gifts, he reveals more and more to us how we live and breathe only by the grace of God, only by the mercy of God. And the older we get, the more we become who he made us to be and the more aware we are of how much we fail to be who he made us to be. Okay? That's the life of godliness. And so when David says, what? Acquit me of my hidden faults. Okay? He says, who can discern his errors? Keep me from presumptuous sins. And we'll get to that later. David is just doing what you see over and over and over again in Scripture. And it is this theme of the godly desiring to be purified. Now, if you do not desire self-knowledge, you are not a religious person. Because religion consists of knowing God and knowing yourself. There's no point in knowing God if you don't know yourself. As a matter of fact, you cannot know God if you don't know yourself. The person who claims to know God and then spouts off about how God just wants us to be happy is an idiot. Nowhere in Scripture does it reveal any kind of God like that. The God that we serve is not a God that's impressed by our self-will and by our autonomy and by our, um, by our own sense of what, what fits fairness and Uh, by our own lifestyle choices. You know, all that language that our media uses and that we hear in classrooms and that we hear on the television and all that language that we so easily say to one another about 
um, you know, being true to ourselves and everything that means is, is complete bunk. I mean, it's just completely pathetic. Uh, because once you become religious, you see the majesty of God. You see his holiness. You see that he is absolutely faithful to his own character. You see that he is truth, that all men are liars, but God is true. You see that he's unchangeable. You see that he is unable to break faith with his bride, the church. Now, here we go into sex. But the character of God cannot be unfaithful to his church, his bride. And he demands that the relationship sexually between a man and a woman also be one of faithfulness. And so it's very interesting as I was reading an exposition by Obadiah Sedgwick on this psalm. When he really gets at the heart of secret sins, adultery always comes up. Because let me tell you, no matter how free our culture is, when it comes to adultery, even the thought of adultery, that's the point where we want to be most secret. Remember how Jesus spoke to the Pharisees? He said to them, you have adulterous hearts. And there we get right at the nub of how we are absolutely opposed to the character of God. God is faithful to his bride. He never turns away from her. And we have such ease in saying to one another, He will never leave us and forsake us. We have eternal security. We will be preserved until the end. And then turn right around and look at a woman with lust in our eyes when we are married. Do you understand that? And so when we go to this psalm and we see David and we see him saying, what? We see him saying, Reveal to me, and acquit me of my secret sins, my hidden faults. Keep me from presumptuous sin. Who can discern his errors? We're seeing the confession of Christians all through time that when it comes to holiness, there seems to be a bottomless well of deceit and wickedness in us. And we have one of two ways we can respond to that. We can either say, you know, really, I would just as much, I, I'd rather have the public religion where you go through a liturgy and, and, and maybe say a few things to the priest. But, you know, bless me, Father, for I have sinned, for I did not come to a complete stop at the stop sign. You know, I'd rather have that kind of a religion. It's very boundary focused. You know, I know what the laws are. But this stuff about looking inside and knowing myself, this stuff where I pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help me with my secret sins, that's overwhelming. I'm already discouraged. You know, I don't need more discouragement. Huh? That's depressing. I already know what I need. I need the cross. I need Jesus. I need the blood. Don't, you know, I, listen. You might have to have my sin preached to me to drive me to the cross, but once I'm at the cross, I don't need to hear anything more about my sin. Right? And here's David, right? A man after God's own heart. And here he is. This is the man that committed adultery and and murder, killed the husband, right? Okay? And he says, you know, help me with these secret sins. It's like, David, I think your public ones are good enough. (laughs) You know? We're going to spend a few weeks talking about these secret sins. But for those of you who think that's too discouraging and you can't bear it, let me ask you a question. 
What causes you consistently to love God? What causes you to love Jesus? Do you love Jesus because you find that the righteous never go without bread? Yeah, that is one thing about him. He does provide for us, and that includes our food. We do pray in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. But I mean when your heart beats passionately, and that's the most abused word in the church today. I'm so sick of hearing about passion. You know, let's just worship the Lord passionately. You know? Okay, fine. Let's take them on. Let's worship the Lord passionately. And you know what's going to cause it? What will cause you to worship the Lord passionately is when you pray that He will reveal to you your secret sins. You look at them in all their horror. You ask your home group to help you look at them in all their horror. You give permission to your wife to say the things she has been biting her tongue trying not to say for 20 years. And then, seeing your sin, your secret sin, the secret sin that only your wife can speak to, you then look at the cross and you see that for that sin Jesus died. You see that when Jesus knew that sin perfectly and knew that you would be wallowing in it a score, as John Dunn said, all right, that you would be making that sin to others their door, all right, that he, knowing that, died for you. And that he promises forgiveness to you when you confess that sin. Now, you can talk about passion all you want, but the truth is that passion in worship, a deep understanding of the grace of God, the freedom to be joyful, comes from seeing that for that sin too, Christ died. So I don't want you to avoid self-knowledge. As a shepherd, as a pastor, I don't want you to flee from the searchlight brilliance of the Holy Spirit in your heart. I want you to embrace it so that you know that it's not enough to talk about how you were harmed when you were a child. Because that's someone else. And it's not enough for you to talk about how you harmed your children as they were growing and didn't love them, didn't do the things that we as parents all fail at. It's not enough to talk about not stopping at stop signs. It's not enough to say in principle, well, yes, sometimes I do take the second look. All right? But what we need to do is go to the Holy Spirit and say, Cleanse me of my hidden faults, my secret sins. And there's no way to pray that prayer without having that prayer be, show them to me that I can confess them. So would you do that this week? Would you ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you your secret sins? Give your wife permission to point out to you that your failings, not for the purpose of self-pity and flagellation, but for the purpose of meditating on the fact that for that sin Jesus died. And that the hope that you have to put that sin to death is also only from Jesus and the work of his Holy Spirit in you. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ came to die, not for the righteous, but for sinners. And so if you're a sinner, this is your home. The Bible is your book. Jesus is your God. And just cast yourself on his mercy. 
He knows exactly the nature of your secret besetting sins. And he will be merciful. He says, those who come to him, he will never cast out. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray.